Good morning. Happy Sabbath. So uh, let's go ahead and uh, get started with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to come together and study your word. We ask that your spirit will be with us today, enlightening our minds, that we can see more clearly your character, your plan for healing and restoration, that we can fulfill your purpose for our lives. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing a, starting a new quarter today. It is called Agents of Hope, God's Great Missionaries. And if someone would open to the introduction section for us, if someone would read for us the first four paragraphs there, uh, starting with Swede Ingmar Bergman. Swede Ingmar Bergman told a story about a knight named Antonius Block who kneels in front of a confessional to confess his sins. He does not realize until later that he is talking to death a shadowy robed character rather than a priest. Block declares that he is seeking not faith, not suppositions, but knowledge. I want, he says, God to stretch out his hand toward me, reveal himself and speak to me. Death replies that perhaps there is no God, that there is only nothing. Then, says Block, life is an outrageous horror. No one can live in the face of death, knowing that all is nothingness. Today, millions live in the face of such nothingness. They have no faith in God, no hope in anything past the world around them. No wonder, then, that so many focus on the comforts of this life, seeking solace and pleasure in the various worldly distractions. The Christian faith, which calls upon us to, quote, fix our eyes on, fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This concept is foreign to them. So what do you think about those first four paragraphs of thoughts? Why do millions reject God, do you think? Got the wrong picture. Do you think in rejecting God, those millions that are rejecting God are actually further from God than those who accept this distorted picture of God? You know, I have patients who reject God, and, and I'll ask them, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And as they describe Him, I say, well, good for you, I don't believe in Him either. And they're actually closer to God than the people who believe in this horrible caricature, mischaricature of God. And so, you know, it's really helpful. You see their minds open up, they go, oh, I never thought about that before. You know, I'm actually closer to God than the people who believe in this God. And uh, then you can really have a dialogue and move them along that way. In the fifth paragraph, it says, As Christians, we are God's agents to bring these people hope, to show that there is a God who loves and cares for them, to show that although life has many outrageous horrors, it is not ultimately an outrageous horror, but that God will finally make all things right. And and the question I have is, how will he finally make all things right? How do we teach he will finally make all things right? By bringing an outrageous horror? Yeah, burning people as I mean, interesting. You know, life's not an outrageous horror, but God's going to make everything right. And, and how is it often taught? By burning all the bad By making an outrageous horror. Did anybody else catch that? Yeah, it's kind of strange. Well, we're, let's go into lesson one as we think about that for this quarter, that we definitely don't want to represent God in ways that make an outrageous horror. Lesson one is, for such a time as this, the Apostle Paul. And somebody read for us in Sabbath there the, first, the very first paragraph. The idea that the good news was also good news for the Gentiles was a shocker to both two people who, despite the teachings of their own prophets, had grown up with a different understanding. God's salvation was for the entire world, not just for the Jewish people. Talk about a paradigm shift. And why do you think this was such a shocker, that the salvation was for the entire world? Why do you think that was a shocker? 
They were the chosen people. Anybody disagree with that? They were exclusive. Yeah, they were exclusive. Okay, so their mindset, being the chosen, thought that they were exclusive, chosen for salvation. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Would you say that this was uh, was narcissism? Yeah. You know, group narcissism. We're the chosen. You're the losers. We're saved. You're lost. We're right. You're wrong. Na 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 na. I mean, isn't isn't that group narcissism at, at its core? She says we speak of Adventists and non-Adventists. Do we speak of dark counties? Dark. <laughs> <laughs> and what 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 is a dark county? No <laughs> I hate this. I hate to laugh. I don't want anyone to think I'm making fun or mocking. I'm not, but it it just you have to laugh at something that's sad, don't you? Like Outsider. what? Outsider. Yeah, yeah. No, we, we boy, we we don't want to go down this trail. Um, pardon? About Philistines. Philistines, yeah. But but this narcissism. Do you think it results from from? The fact that they were worshiping a god who they saw as elitist, arbitrary, and selective. Do you think they saw God in the right light? No. No, because when God came among them and stood among them and talked to women and visited the Samaritans and touched lepers and healed sick people, uh, did they go, wow, what an awesome God? Or how dare you interfere with God's judgments against people? Because they had a view of God which was elitist and arbitrary, so they became like this God. Thus, the root seems to be the God that they were worshiping resulted in, in their character transformation. They, they worship a God who valued genetic descendancy more than character. Is there a danger in that going on today? Do people today's world struggle with this same problem? A God who values genetics? Hmm. Well, what biblical evidence could you provide which would demonstrate that God is not a respecter of persons, that he is not concerned with your genealogy, he's concerned with your character. What, what, what evidence could you provide from Scripture? His genealogy. His genealogy. How does that help us with, with he's not a respecter of persons? And, and because he was uh, a descendant of David. Rahab. Yes, but he's a descendant of David. So those who say that you know, genetic descendancy makes a difference, how does his genealogy exclude that? I mean, Rahab was involved, I understand, and so was um, Ruth. God so loved the world. Okay, God so loved the world. So it did, it's not God so loved the Jewish people. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Okay. He ministered to everybody. The woman at the well, the tax collectors, the sinners. You know, that's who he... Hung out with. He said he came to save sinners, mm-hmm. not the righteous. He came to save sinners, not the righteous. So, who on earth is a sinner? Everybody. Okay, so he came to save us all. Uh, any other texts, Bible texts that, that speak to this question? Oh, yes. I don't know the text, but uh, if you believe in Jesus, you are descendants of Abraham's marriage. If you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed? Yeah. yeah. Okay, Paul. Okay, so there's a text. Good. So we're descendants. Uh, how about Timothy, where he says that God wants all men to come to salvation? That includes women, too, doesn't it? Yeah. No, but he wants all people. It's not just uh, certain gene- genealogies. This is a very important concept. Believe it or not, you know, we as Adventists haven't struggled with that concept too much. But many, many Christians and religious people of the world do struggle with this. They actually think there's something um, that God somehow shows favoritism 
let's explore, see if we can bring clarity to that. How many intelligent, sentient species did God create to live on this planet? One. 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 <laughs> One species, the human race, was, was created to live on this planet. Okay. Okay. There, there's not a whole bunch of subspecies of intelligent beings. There's there's one, and so you know we are we are all in the same boat. Now, with that being said, God did call the Jewish nation for a special for a special people. What what was what was their calling for? To show the world what God was like. Yeah. Was was their call exclusive for salvation? Even in all, let's go back before Christ. Let's go actually back to the time when they were uh, in the role of being the special nation, clearly that all Christians, even which side do you come down on the question, back before Christ, everyone understands this is the time they were called to be God's special people. At that point in time in history, did you have to be part of the Jewish nation to be saved? No. no, they had provision for Gentiles. Wait, 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 but you said they had provision, which means then still it's coming through the Jewish nation. When you said they had provision. See, that's still somehow connected to them. Uh, did you have to be in any way connected to the Jewish nation to be saved? No, because God said all who wanted out of the Egyptians to come, they could. Okay, they came and they, they joined, though, with the Jewish nation. They started practicing how do we understand that? Can you give examples of anybody that we know from Scripture who was saved, who never participated in the Jewish system in the Old Testament? Nebuchadnezzar? Never participated as far as we know. In the, how about Naaman? Did Naaman ever participate as far as we know? Both of these two. There's two examples right here. When, when they were embodied, when they were invested as a special people, that people were still being saved outside the system. They didn't have to bring sacrifices. They didn't have to worship at the temple. They didn't have to join the ceremonies, the rituals, do the feast days, do all that stuff, and yet they were still saved. How do we understand that? Yes? Two other examples are Melchizedek and... Melchizedek's a good example. Melchizedek yeah. had no heritage. You know, it was used as, as an example of a... So we have examples. So how do we make sense of this? If, if, in fact, God is selective, even at the time when they are the chosen on earth, we have examples of people being saved without coming through that system. What about the city of Nineveh? The whole city of Nineveh. Yep. So how do we understand that then? What was then the purpose? If this wasn't the path, because don't we almost, almost automatically always think it was through that old system that salvation was, was brought? And we had to go through that old system in the Old Testament times. That was the way you had to go. And because there's so, there so many strict penalties applied if you didn't do the things right, that it seemed to be very restrictive and there weren't other options available. So, so how do we understand it when we do find examples that people never came through that system and were saved? They were teachers the of the book. Jews were supposed to be a light and they were not. Jews were supposed to be a light and they were not, yes. And they were keepers of the book. Yes, what does that mean? They're keepers of, of a ideology. Well, well, let's step back and what was God trying to accomplish on planet Earth after Adam sinned? Bring back in harmony with. Bring restoration of. The whole planet, right? Yeah. Okay. So, did were the Jewish nation called to help him in that goal of reaching the whole planet? Right. Yeah. And then the Jewish nation. As I understand it, we're called to be actors in a play, an acting troupe in a drama. God is the director, and each one has their assigned roles, and they have a script 
that they have to go by the script because the script acts out a play. Now imagine actually being on Broadway. Broadway play, you've got your script. And then people decide to diverge from the script and do their own thing. What will the director do? Thunder. Find new actors. In yeah, exactly. He will either find new actors or he will intervene. intervene and hammer them to get them back on script. Okay? That's what's happening in the Old Testament when you see God coming down on them when they weren't doing things properly. They were de deviating from the script. The script was simply the enactment, an acting out of the grand plan of salvation in symbolic form, a drama, and it went on for 1,500 years until Christ came. And when Christ came, the curtain came down on that, on that drama, literally. The curtain came down. And that drama was over. The acting out was no longer needed. But that's all it was. It was, a, it was an acting out. Now, if you're in the audience watching a Broadway play, do you have to be part of the acting troupe to learn the lessons of what's being taught by the actors? You see, that's why the Naaman and Nebuchadnezzar and these other people could experience salvation, because they weren't part of the acting troupe. Now, people were always free to join the acting troupe. The Egyptians coming out, they joined. But if you join, then you've got to go by the script. Ruth. Rahab, if you join, you've got to follow the script because now you're part of the troop acting out the play. But if you don't join, you don't have to follow the script. You only have to do in your heart and mind what the script is teaching, what the play is trying to teach. You have to experience that reconciliation with God, that renewal, that regeneration. As David says, and we're going to give some more text here, that even during this time, Psalms 51, 16, David says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I'd bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Did Nebuchadnezzar finally experience that? Yes. Did Naaman experience that? You see, this is what the, the whole plan was trying to teach people, what God wanted, was this actual regeneration of heart. Or Micah 6, 6-8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down with the exalted God? Shall I bring before him burnt offerings, a calf a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer the firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. See, that's what God's wanted all along. And the old acting of the, the old system was merely an enactment to try and teach how God is trying to bring us to that point. And those who understood and experienced that transformation of heart experience what God really wanted, that regeneration part. Yeah. What do you mean by Israel wasn't needed after, after Christ came? The acting, the play was no longer needed. The drama was no longer needed. Why? Because the reality of Christ's life was much more clear than the, than the acting out of the symbols. Yeah. Explain what you mean by they don't have to follow the script. Yeah, in other words, Naaman and Nebuchadnezzar did not have to come uh, and uh, offer sacrifices at the temple and have the blood applied to the burnt offering, and they didn't have to keep Passover, and they didn't have to keep uh, the rest of the feast days every year. They didn't have to do any of that because they weren't part of the troop acting out the play. But they did have to experience regeneration of heart, to be walk humbly with your God, love mercy, act justly, that transformation in the inner man. They had to experience that. So you're not calling the commandments the script? No, 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 no. The script was the Old uh, Testament uh, sacrificial system. Yeah, the rituals, the acting out. Yeah. What are the commandments? Aren't they merely a distilled revelation of, of the character of God and, and of, the, of how we're supposed to acknowledge, uh, treat God and treat our, our fellow man? The, yeah, I guess the question, what was the purpose of the commandments? They were not the drama acted out. Right. They weren't the drama. But were they added 
calculations, the law was added. Yes. Because of sin. Because of sin. Yes. What were they added for? They weren't added to act out the drama so people could see the thing in, in action. What were they added for then? So what was the drama that they had to act out? The plan of salvation. That was the drama. In terms of? In terms of the priests uh, represent the... Boy, do we... In terms, of, in terms of acting out the character of God. In terms of actually acting out God's plan to come and take upon himself our sick condition and cure it. And then reproduce that sick, that his perfect perfect character in us and regenerate us back into righteousness. The plan of salvation. Act it out. To practice and then to act out the character of God to the other people. The Ten Commandments. They weren't part of the drama. What were they? What were they trying to teach us? To bring us to Christ. Okay. To tr- the school teacher to bring us to someplace else. So they're a diagnostic instrument. They expose, just like an MRI exposes the tumor in the lung that you can't see, the Ten Commandments expose the sickness of character that would not be diagnosable if it wasn't for the law. Paul says, if it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't know what sin was. But because of the law, sin is abounded all the more. In other words, because of God gave the Ten Commandments, I can actually see how sick I am now. And I didn't even know how sick I was before the Ten Commandments were given. So the Ten Commandments were given as a way for us to expose in us that we are actually sick. We're defective. And then that brings us to conviction. Hey, there's something wrong. Which brings us to the physician, the schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, who then heals us. Yes. Could we go so far as to say that Naaman and Nebuchadnezzar actually got it and maybe understood the character of God better than the actors themselves? Um, th- certainly than some of the actors, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Not necessarily all the actors. They may have transcended the play. Exactly, but they were never participants in it. Correct. Yeah. Yes. So, by a temple, by priests, by sacrifices <laughs> as the motive for the play. Yeah, why, why that? Schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. Because yeah, Why that particular theme? Um, because that was a mindset that the people could comprehend and understand. Because that's the way the pagans were doing things. Yeah. They had temples, they had sacrifices. So mm. God had to compete with the different other plays going on in the, in the region. And he, he met the people where they were with a, with a motif they could comprehend and engage and understand to try and lead them out of darkness into light. But it was only added because of their sin. Yeah. If they would have kept the law of God in mind as given to Adam, there would have been no need for the ordinance of circumcision. If they would have kept circumcision in mind, there would have been no need for the Ten Commandments. And if they would have kept the Ten Commandments and understood what it meant, there would have been no need for all the ritual given. They, they kept ad- he kept giving more and more and more because of their dark and darkened state to try and reach them where they were and lead them out of darkness into light. Is there any value in learning the festivities and joining in on them now? Some people do. Um, hmm. Interesting question. Uh, can there be value of an educational sort? Remember, even in the Old Testament times, Isaiah chapter 1, God berates the people in Isaiah chapter 1, berates them for feast days, sacrifices, burnt offerings, Sabbaths, new moon festivals. He's all over them. He says, I'm sick of it. My soul can't stand it anymore. I'm tired of these things. Because in verse 13, it says, stop bringing meaningless offerings. They were doing these rituals without actually having the mind enlightened. And thus in verse 18, it says, come, let us reason together that your sins are scarlet. So if somebody wanted to go back and study these things and even maybe reenact some of these things for the purpose of trying to get, have your mind enlightened to the meaning of what it's actually teaching, I'm sure that can 
be very beneficial. Uh, is it necessary, though? I don't know that it's necessary, but there's probably nothing harmful in it as long as we don't somehow believe that it's requirement that we have somehow, somehow magic occurs. And the human mind is so susceptible to becoming m- mystical and magical that when we do certain rituals, we think, ooh, we've done, a, we've done something, and now, now something special has happened that otherwise didn't happen. These, all these rituals were, had no power in them other than they were designed to, to get our minds thinking, to ask questions. Look, yeah. Look what's happened to the communion service. The communion service in our own church service becomes magical to some. Yeah. And in Christianity in general. Yes. All right. We had a roll. Yes. Christ wrote the script originally in the Garden of Eden. And I think the other pagan people, the other pagan worshippers, that was a counterfeit of the real one. Uh, that's actually probably true. I think there's good insight in that. You know, in the Garden of Eden, he gave them the, uh, the initial sacrifice uh, that Abel did. And then Satan came and counterfeited it with pagan sacrifice of appeasement. And so, uh, you know, God then was, was clarifying with the sanctuary service. I think that's right on. That's right on. We're going to jump ahead because, there's, because time gets away from us so fast. We'll come back to some of the other days if we get a chance. But let's move ahead to Wednesday's lesson. Read the first paragraph for somebody in Wednesdays. Several major themes dominated and motivated the Apostle Paul's life and mission. At the top of the list was the story of Jesus crucified. This event was the basis of everything he taught and did. He wrote to the Corinthians, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And to the Galatians he wrote, But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. These verses show that for Paul, the cross of Christ, which of necessity includes Christ's resurrection as well, was the central theme of his whole theology. And would you all agree that the cross of Christ, including his resurrection, is not just the central theme of Paul's theology, it's a central theme, the most important event in all universal history, not just human history, but the whole universe? I really really question there, you know, whether the uh, central, it's mentioned several places through the lesson, uh, isn't the truth about God, his character and government in contrast to the lies that Satan said? In other words, there are Adventists today who believe and teach that, you know, our central theme should be, what is God like? Can well, you trust him? Is it more important to know that he died on the cross or that you can trust him? Interestingly, I read a comment from Ellen White yesterday that she says the central theme of Scripture is the redemption plan, restoring God's image in man. From the promise in Genesis, chapter 3, where he uh, spoke to the serpent, all the way to Revelation, uh, the entire theme of Scripture is God's plan to restore in his creatures his image. She doesn't say his character. However, when you put that together with other things, you'll discover that his character can only be rightly understood through understanding the redemption plan. That's where we understand his character. And so for Paul, the character of God is most powerfully revealed in what Christ accomplished for us in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so it's still the cross of Christ is central. I agree with that whole theme, life, death, and resurrection, but they just say the, the crucifixion of the cross. And it seems to me that that's just become a cliche, so, so forth. So my, it's much broader than that. That is limiting, really. So, so then maybe this segues into the question I have is, if it is the most central thing in the universe, 
for all of us to contemplate, and Ellen White, and of course the Bible teaches that, that the cross of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, will be our science and song through all eternity. This will be the focus that all that angels long to look into these themes, his plan of redemption, what Christ accomplished for us. They're studying this thing. If this is the case, do you think that Satan would make it his number one focus for confusion? That he would spend his number one energy on trying to have us misunderstand what Christ accomplished for us at the cross. Yes, and so with that in mind, God's trying to have us reveal some incredible truth to us at the, at, at, through the life and death and resurrection of Christ. And the devil's trying to confuse us about God through that very same uh, events. Let's look at some texts that the lesson suggests there for us to look at and uh, discuss them. Romans 5.10 says... For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? What does that mean? Without his life, the death would have meant nothing. How are we reconciled to God through the death of his son? That's what it says. Reconciled to him through the death of his son. How does the death of Christ reconcile us to God? We were brought back to him at one minute. Yeah, at one minute. What does it mean? What does that one minute mean? Picture of God's character, and through that, then we reconciled in our own minds. We, uh, we were given a clear picture of God's character. Okay, so there's a big piece that that, that Ashley's saying right now that in Christ's life and His self-sacrificing death, that we have a revelation of God's true character that displaces distortions and lies about God, that wins us back to trusting God. So that's a big, huge piece. Is that all of it? No, there's a healing remedy. There's a healing remedy piece. You see, some want us to think that that's all that's necessary is the revelation, which is absolutely important. The lies that separate us from God that we've believed uh, have to be purged by the truth. No question about it. No question. And Christ did that. But was more needed in order for complete reconciliation? Did sin do something to the species? Has sin damaged God's creation? Does that creation need healing, regeneration, recreating? Does that need to happen? Or does truth just need to be revealed and everything's fine with that? It's not enough, is it? No. And, uh, and this idea of just revealing truth leaves us still sick. Christ came to do more. Can anyone see in Christ's life that he did more than reveal truth? Did he do more than reveal truth? He healed. He healed. But he healed people of physical illnesses, but every one of those people who have healed of physical illnesses in 60, 70 years, what happened to them? They died. They died. So they weren't healed from sin by healing physical illness. So we're talking the, 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 the law of sin and death that Paul talks about, that the law of uh, the spirit of life saved me from the law, or healed me from the law of sin and death. Okay. So how did Christ do battle with the law of sin and death, or did he? Did Christ do battle with that law? Is his selfish nature in the garden battled Did you hear what she said, everybody? In the garden, Christ battled with selfishness. Okay? It says that he, Isaiah tells us, and other places he tells us, that, that he took our infirmities upon himself. What do you think that means, our infirmities? Some people will th- say, say it means he took our individual acts of sin. 
upon himself. All every sin committed, past, present, and future, is placed upon Christ at the cross, and then God imposed a penalty and, and caused punishment to fall upon his son and punished our sins in Jesus on the cross, executing him and torturing him and making him suffer. And so all that, that's what some people interpret that to mean, that every act of sin, past, present, and future, put on Christ and punished in Christ on the cross. God doing it to him. Is, is that how you understand it? No. Yeah, say that louder. He took our weakness. Okay, he took our weakness. What is the weakness that we have? What is our weakness? Self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. Selfishness. Exactly right. Fear and selfishness, okay? He took that upon himself. And it says in uh, Hebrews 4.15 that he was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. And James 1.13 says that we are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. Now, in this room, have any of you ever been tempted from feelings of insecurity, feelings of fear, feelings of needing to protect self, to watch out for self? Have you ever been tempted with that from inside yourself? Now, if Christ was tempted in every way just like we are, then wouldn't that mean that he had to be tempted that way too? So do we see evidence of that? In Gethsemane, did Christ experience an overwhelmingly powerful feeling, so intense that he broke him into a sweat of blood? Did he experience those feelings, those emotions? And if he followed those feelings, who would he have saved? Notice that. The feelings tempted him to act to save self. Who did he actually save? All of us. By doing what? What, what was required for him to save us? Not save himself. He actually, now remember, when he's on the cross being crucified, he's not like the two thieves. Two thieves, did they have a choice to take themselves down off that cross? No. Did they have any ability to stop death's approach? Could Christ stop death from overcoming him? Yes. Could he have taken himself off the cross? Be clear on this. Death could only take Christ because he allowed it. No one can take my life. I will give it freely. Thus we find in Christ the very principles of love face to face with the principles of selfishness and he is being tempted in a degree and I want you to understand how powerful this is when he was made to be sin. No human being that I know of thus far other than Christ at Gethsemane and to the cross has had to deal with your own selfish nature uninterceded by the working of the Holy Spirit in your mind. You understand, you have Holy Spirit giving you grace, shielding you from the full weight of what your carnal nature would be like if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit. At Gethsemane, that shield was removed in Christ and he did battle in his own person with the full weight. This is when he was made to be sin, though he knew no sin. When we talk about sin being placed upon him, it wasn't acts of sin. It was the whole weight of the sinful condition bore down upon his mind and caused a desire and a fear and an anguish and, a, and a, dis, a distress of soul so great that he was tempted to stop it. But it says, for the joy set before him. Well, what was the joy that was set before him? Our salvation. Our salvation. Love for his Father, love for us. Love gave instead of giving in. And he actually defeated the very elements in our nature that lead us to sin. So it wasn't just a revelation. It was a conquest. He came face to face with the second death and he destroyed it. And it says in 1 Timothy 1.10, it says that Christ destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. He destroyed death by confronting this. Yes, there was a hand back here. Yes. I just wanted to know, if the Holy Spirit is now interceding in our own minds to protect us from that selfish, extreme selfish desire... 
what was interceding in men's minds before the Holy Spirit came to this earth? Uh, the, the, there was never a before the Holy Spirit other than before Adam sinned. As soon as Adam sinned, God began intercession, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we find right in uh, Genesis chapter 3, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, which is Satan. I will put a desire in the heart for good. I will intercede and convict and to woo and to draw. I will enlighten. In other words, the Spirit began working right away before Christ came. That's why you read in uh, Psalms 51 where David says, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Okay, the Holy Spirit's always been working in the mind. And how is it different now after Christ left? Is it also in the Spirit to be with you? How is that different from before Christ? Because now we have the additional truths, achievements, and accomplishments that Christ has achieved in our behalf that the Holy Spirit can bring to us. And we have a fuller, fuller knowledge and revelation. Right. So. You know, he takes the victory of Christ and makes it reproduce in us. If that makes sense to you, yeah. Getting back to this uh, idea of Christ's temptations and, and comparing it with ours, I think this is extraordinarily valuable and, and deserves a lot of pondering and thought on our part. Because when, when we are tempted, we typically give in early. At least I do, um, and we have no concept of how exponentially more difficult it was for Christ who who resisted the temptation as a teenager and as a man in his 20s and in his 30s and then at Gethsemane and then at uh, the cross itself. We have, we have really no concept of how difficult that was and how much more dreadful it was to be tempted repeatedly and repeatedly by, by the devil because we usually give in early in the process. And, and think about as a kid being teased by his brothers. And it's not just an action, you understand. Christ said, if you commit adultery, you commit sin. I say, if you look at your, a woman with lust in your heart. Christ never had a thought. Not a thought. On the cross, remember, when he was being crucified, he didn't even think, be gone. Because if he would have, they'd have been gone. He's the creator, okay? Uh, he didn't even have a thought of a sinful nature. So it's, it's, in, it's impressive, yes. When he was made perfect, you know, and talks about in Hebrews... He matured in his relationship, though. So, uh, the, the Hebrews five eight it says once once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation. My understanding is once he defeated this battle that we just went through, where love overcame selfishness, ultimately at the cross, perfecting that character, restoring God's character, God's law in the human species, his own personhood. That's when he was made perfect. He was made perfect until he gave up his life. That's it. That's it. Because, and people say, well, why would he have to die to do that? Think about this. If anywhere along the path towards death, on the cross in Gethsemane, anywhere along that path as death is approaching, if Christ exercises his power to stop death's approach, who is he saved? And then, and then which one? Selfishness or love? You say death was the only way to destroy selfishness because if Christ stopped it anywhere along the way, he acts in self-interest to save himself. And only the way, only way love could win was by giving himself freely. If he had done that, would have even he have saved himself? Yeah. Well, ultimately, divinity can't die, so yeah. Well, I mean saving in the, in the way of keeping the harmony in the universe. If he had... No, he would not have kept the harmony in the universe if he had done that. No, but he would, have, he would have saved self, and he would have actually become exactly what Satan alleged he always is, a self-centered God rather than an other-centered God, a loving God. Yeah. Yes. I have a quick question. Oh, yes. About, um, you were saying that in the Garden of Gethsemane, the guard of the Holy Spirit was removed, or Christ didn't have the, you know, 
the Holy Spirit and receiving prayer. But did throughout his life did he have that? Absolutely. Just removed at the Garden of Testament. Yes, absolutely. We got to be like him. Don't mind all the children will be done, even if it is a field. Yeah, exactly right. But we never have to go through the Gethsemane experience. We will never have to go through that battle without the Holy Spirit there to help us. Christ did battle singly and alone in our behalf. We will never have to do that. Would his suffering be any different, his, the intensity of his suffering be any different without the cross? Uh, the intensity of the mental anguish was actually uh, felt primarily in Gethsemane. Gethsemane, he fell down dying, and he would have died if an angel had not revived him, if you remember. So the mental anguish of confronting the, the, the infection of our, of our inherent sickness was done and conquered in Gethsemane. What happened after Gethsemane was the further revelation of his willingness to allow his creatures to abuse him, which would not have been revealed in Gethsemane, that God is a, a God who would rather let his own creatures kill him than ever use his power to stop their freedom from doing so. But let's go on now. The two things that, that needed in our perspective that we need, we need two things in order to be healed. One, we have to have the lies about God purged from our mind and one back to trust, don't we? Isn't that true? We have to have that? Yes. But we need, what else do we need in addition to be? Once we're one to trust, we need something else. What is that? Healing, regenerating, recreating. And so we read in Hebrews 8.10, I will put my law in their hearts and minds. So we need that law rewritten in the heart and mind. What is another name for the law? Law. Love, which is another name for? God's character. God is love. God's character. The law is a transcript of his character. We need to be reproduced to have the image of God restored within us. It's all saying this. Zechariah chapter 3, the metaphor of Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan is accusing. And it says, the angel of the Lord says, take away his filthy garments. See, I have taken away your sin. This is a metaphor, the filthy garments, sinful character. And then it says, put on the rich robes. We have to have the, the wicked desires, the, 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 the bent and twisted heart, the ugliness of character, the selfishness removed, and love for others rewritten in. Revelation 3.18, Christ says, to obtain from him the white raiment and the gold tried in the fire. Both of these metaphors for a new heart and a right spirit, a new character. Ellen White says in Christ Object Lessons 3.11, it says, this robe... Woven in the loom of heaven has in it not one thread of human devising. Christ in his humanity wrought out a perfect character, and this character he offers to impart to us. You see, this is a gift. When we trust him, the Holy Spirit then comes into the heart, and the Holy Spirit begins reproducing, regenerating, healing, recreating, uh, bringing our thoughts in harmony with his, changing our desires, uh, restoring us to be like Christ. He takes what is Christ and makes it known to us. Yes, Lisa. Wonderful question. And let's look at our Bible. Isaiah chapter 14, where it talks about Satan's wanting to be like God. And let's look at exactly what he wanted. It says, uh, starting in verse 12, How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star? Who's the morning star? Lucifer. Some verses say Lucifer. Yeah, the light bearer. Son of the dawn, you have been cast down to earth. 
you who once laid the nation, low the nations. Now it says, listen to this. You, will, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit enthroned in the mount of the assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Do you hear that? Okay. Now, what action is, is Lucifer wanting to take? All these action words that I just read, what, what, what kind of action is he wanting? I will ascend, I will raise, I will enthrone, I will rise, I will... So what, what action is he wanting to do? Okay. And, and so, and then he says, after all those actions, I will be like the Most High. Now, let's look in Philippians chapter 2. And it says, Your attitude should be like that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him. What, what direction did Jesus go with his action words? Do you notice Satan is action up, promote self, promote self, promote self? Jesus is sacrificing self, sacrificing self, sacrificing self. So when the Bible says here that Satan wanted to be like the Most High, did he actually want to be like the Most High? No, he did not want to be like the Most High. He wanted to be like his distorted image of the Most High. He thought in his mind, he perverted his own mind and believed that God was self-exalting, self-promoting, self-centered, and he wanted to be like that. But we have in Jesus the revelation that God is not like that, so Satan actually was not trying, Lucifer was not trying to be like the Most High. If he would, he would have humbled himself. He would even offer to step out of his covering cherub and let someone else be covering cherub because he would be so humble. Does that answer your question? So when we become like the Most High, we want to become giving, self-sacrificing. And thus we read in Revelation 12, those who are ready to meet Christ when he comes, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. It's not about self anymore. Satan didn't want God's character. He wanted his power so we just read about that robe he imparts to us now in Christ Object Lessons 3.12 this is what she says he says when we submit our, ourselves to Christ the heart is united with his heart the will is merged with his will the mind becomes one with his mind the thoughts are brought into ha- captivity to him we live his life this is what it means to be clothed in the garment of his righteousness do you see this is not an external covering that covers over some defect in heart this is a regenerating process that actually reforms rebuilds recreates us to be like Christ all right, next text in, the list, in our lesson there is 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given in its proper time. How do we understand this text? Ransom for all, one mediator between God and man. See, this language gets used in ways that often darken the mind. I think the next text, the first Peter text, explains who we're ransomed from, or two. Read the first Peter text. Well, it talks about being ransomed from futile ways. It says for you, uh, is this the first Peter 18, 1, 18 and 19? Right. It says, for uh, you know it, that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty ways of life handed down from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb without blemish or defect. Okay, so it's indicating the, the perishable, uh, the empty ways there. So let's talk about how do you understand ransom. Because recently, 
um, there was an online discussion that I'm involved in where this came up. And some people point out that people will use the ransom in a forensic way, that Jesus had to pay the penalty to his father so the father could then be able to pardon or forgive our sins and appease the wrath of his father, and that was the ransom necessary. This is a traditional way of using the word. Uh, And this particular person rejects that concept, and so they said, well, the only thing that it really means is that it costs God a lot. Well, it did cost God a lot, and it cost Christ a lot. That's true, too. But what does a ransom actually do? What's the function of a ransom? It frees, it frees someone who's been taken captive. It frees someone who's been... Isn't that what a ransom does? No. Ransom frees from captivity. Well, what is it that holds us captive? Two things. Okay, sinfulness. We are dead in our trespasses of sin. So our very condition holds us captive, number one. But also, number two, lies about God. Lies about God that we believe that keep us from trusting Him. So Christ came to pay the ransom necessary. One, reveal the truth to destroy the lies to win us back to trust. And two, cure the condition. Fix it. Did He do those two things? And that was what was necessary. How could we be set free if we didn't have the truth and if we didn't have a remedy that heals and sets and cures our condition? So I don't have a problem with ransom language, but we have to define it and understand it. What about this idea of mediator, one God and one mediator between God and man? How do we understand that? How is it traditionally taught? Depends on which way he's facing. Ah, it depends on which way he's facing. How do we normally traditionally see Christ facing? We see him with his back to us, facing God, pleading, please save them, I've died for them, they're my children, they're my adopted sons, don't hurt them. Okay, where does that idea come from? Paganism. Okay, two people have said they've already taken us back to the root, paganism. Let's, let's see if we can't trace our way back there. We are a Protestant denomination, and this Protestant denomination came out of other Protestant denominations back around 1844 and so forth. Where did the Protestant denominations themselves come from? Catholicism. And where did Catholicism arise from? Paganism. Paganism. And what is the root? The root element in all pagan forms of worship is that there is an angry and offended God who has to be appeased. The worshiper has to do something to assuage wrath, to win over, to offer sacrifices, to appease an angry God. Root of all paganism. Now, Catholicism came out of paganism, and what do we see in Catholicism as a central tenet? That you have to have Jesus, Mary, and the saints working on God. And in the Dark Ages, not only was Jesus, Mary, and the saints working, you also had to work. You had to do penances. You had to do all types of indulgences. You had to, you had to do all types of works. God really, really needed appeasing. Protestants protested some of these things. There's only priesthood of believers, uh, salvation by faith, not by works, and then baptism by immersion, Sabbath, state of the dead. I mean, the truths have been recovered. But in my estimation of things, the final truth to be recovered, to complete the Reformation, to bring us back to our understanding of God, is the truth that God does not need his son to appease him. That Christ didn't die as a payment to his dad to get dad to be on on our side. That's paganism, and it has to be rooted out of our thinking. Yes? Yes. Okay. I mean, there's a big pause there. I was wondering, okay. No, it has to be rooted out. And so, and so, and you find the evidence for this. For God so loved the world that he gave. Remember, love is giving. Um, if God is for us, Romans 8, chapter 30, Romans 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up. How will he not also with him give us all things? Who is it? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God and is also interceding. 
for us, in addition to the Father. Christ is right there. And so Paul's saying, basically, guys, look, God is on your side. Remember it says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. I mean, it's always been God's work to heal, redeem, restore, recreate. He's been reaching out after us. But if that's not enough, if you're not really comfortable with God on your side, don't worry. Jesus is right there, and he's working with the Father on your side, too. And Jesus said, I'll send the Holy Spirit. And in verse 24 of the same chapter, the Holy Spirit intercedes with moans and utterances that we can't even understand. The whole Godhead has always been on our side. Amen. Always. And any, uh, any other version of that is paganism. We need to reject it and get it out. So the mediation of Christ is mediating the love of God, the kindness of God, the forgiveness of God, the goodness of God, the character of God to restore all those things back into the species. Christ is the conduit, the avenue through which God reaches mankind in sin to cure, purge, heal, and restore us and redeem us back into oneness with God. He's the one mediating the love of God, the healing plan to us. Is that yes. one of our roles as a church to make that more clear? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, our role as a church is ultimately to stand up and be a witness to the true character of God and the power. It's not just the true character of God that He is love. It is the power of God to heal and restore. Pardon and power. Yes. Pardon and and we, what happens is, you know, Satan doesn't care if we divorce the truth from power. Remember, they have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Okay, and much of Christianity has bought into a forensic model that says Christ died and at Calvary paid the price. If you say the sinner's prayer, you get the blood applied to your record book, pardon is stamped, you're saved, once saved, always saved. Victory comes the day he arrives and then you're instantly, magically transformed into new creatures. Until then, well, we will always live in sin because there's no victory over sin until Christ comes. Okay? Form of godliness denying power. God, Christ says, I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. When? Now. Now. We are to live the abundant life, the life free of fear. And how, I mean, how hard is it living in fear? Anybody ever lived in fear? Fear of what other people think. Fear of financial failure. Fear of getting bad grades. Fear of abandonment. Fear of rejection. Fear of not being loved. Fear, fear, fear. I mean, is it a hard life? Yeah. The abundant life is a life that's free of fear and self-concern where you actually have peace knowing that your, your, your well-being is secure with Christ. He's watching out for the outcomes, and you are free then to give of yourself to other people. That is the abundant life that we are to have now. That's the healed life, the transformed life. Questions or thoughts about any of that? We've only got five minutes left, and, and you know I've only done like three pages of my 11 pages or 12 pages of notes. So um, I will see if there's any specific questions that, and issues you guys wanted to be sure we talk about today. You know, going back to Christ and Gethsemane, there was a time, well, of course, when he was a baby that they tried to kill him. That wouldn't have worked because that wouldn't have shown us his life. But there was also a time, the triumphal entry, when he was saved. And some people say that he saved himself there. Remember when he yeah. was at the cliff. There was many times that he would, but he never did. He never exercised power to save himself. The Father dispatched angels to save him. Now, do we have examples of the Father dispatching angels to save other people? How about the three worthies? How about Daniel and the lion's den? Uh, are there many examples that God... How about the Peter and Paul and when they were in prison and the, and the gates opened and they were taken out of prison? Do we have many... John, when he was thrown in the pot of boiling water, 
Okay. In the surrounding armies. Elisha and the surrounding armies. Uh, there are many, many times when God used his power to save his friends on earth from evil and Satan's destructive forces. And so the fact that that happened to Christ there was not Christ exercising power to save self. It was God exercising power to hold Satan and his agents back from uh, aborting Christ from completing his mission. Right. Because that wouldn't have been an appropriate death because he wouldn't have been giving it up at that time. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, in Thursday's lesson, second paragraph, Thursday's lesson said, Living a godly life, sanctification, Paul makes it very clear throughout his writings that salvation is free, a gift we cannot earn or deserve. But salvation does not, does not free us to behave as we did before we met Jesus. In response to this, his grace, we must live as Jesus asked us to live. And, and, and there's all types of discussion, and people get confused about this whole idea about works versus, you know, uh, grace or faith, you know, and, and how that happens and where the works come in. Um, and, and for me, it's very simple. We, we're, we're dying of pneumonia. We don't stop coughing in order to get well. We stop coughing when we are well. Okay. The sins that we have in our life, the acts, are symptoms of a sick heart. As the heart is healed, the symptoms automatically subside. And if the heart is not being healed, then that just means that we've bought into a false system. In other words, imagine having pneumonia, and the cough is never getting better, the fevers are never going away, and you're taking medicine. What does that tell you? You're taking the wrong medicine. Okay, And if, if, if our lives are never getting better, all it tells us is that we have been taking a false gospel. And we didn't even get into that today, but our lesson also allowed the discussion of Galatians about if someone brings you a false gospel. And there are false gospels out there that give false security. Security of legal pardon, sins forgiven, my right to heaven because I've got the blood of Jesus to my account, but no power to transform, no healing of character, no regeneration. That's a false gospel. The true gospel as it comes into the heart, and this is what the whole Advent movement was about, by the way. The whole purpose of the Advent movement was to reveal the truth about God, win to trust, open the heart to experience healing, regeneration, freedom from fear, so that we actually have, not by hard work on our part, but by, the, by actual regeneration of the Holy Spirit, the symptoms of selfishness subside as we come, become Christ-like people prepared to meet him. So we don't stop coughing in order to get well. We stop coughing when we are well. Does that make sense to people? Yes. 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 You do have to make a personal effort to improve somewhat. Like, you do have to take steps. Like, if you have pneumonia, you do have to, you know, like, help yourself a little. Let's talk about that. That's exactly right. If you have pneumonia, do you you need to go to the doctor? Yes. So do we need to meet with God and and, and open our heart to Christ and commune with him? Uh, And if the doctor gives us an antibiotic, do we need to take it? Now, when you take the antibiotic, does the antibiotic do something in you that you can't do for yourself? Okay. When we take the Holy Spirit in, the Holy Spirit does something for us that we can't do for ourselves. Now, in taking the antibiotic, are we healing ourselves? We are not healing ourselves. No. Okay. When we let the Holy Spirit into our heart, when we trust God and we commune with Him, when we uh, invite the Holy Spirit in, we are not healing ourselves. But will the doctor be able to heal you if you refuse to meet with him and refuse to take the antibiotic? No, the Holy Spirit doesn't heal those who don't open the heart. And thus it says in Revelation, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. So our job is, as you say, to spend time with God, open the heart and trust, let him in, and he heals us. So we do have a responsibility. There's no question. I'm glad you point that out. Lisa. 
is always, well, when are we saved? Are we saved when you see, the question of salvation, and there's two, two, I want to give two answers to that question, we'll close with that. One, people ask, actually as I travel, and I just got back from the Pennsylvania camp meeting, which I was all week this week, got back late last night, uh, as I travel around, this question comes up everywhere, it came up in Nebraska, it comes up in Pennsylvania, and what I say to people is this, when we get to the point that we trust God so much, that we realize how good He is, that we can say to Him, Lord, I trust You with my life, and if You know that the universe would be a better place without me, it's okay not to have me there. You think about where the focus is, suddenly. The question about, am I saved, 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 where are we focusing? On the rest of you? Well, okay, yeah, we'll focus on ourselves. Yeah, if I may say, but God wants us to bring us to a point that we aren't concerned, we aren't afraid of what happens to us anymore. We actually trust Him so much. He says, Lord, I trust you with my life. I, I want to be there. I love you, Lord. I want to be there. But if somehow it's for your best good and for the universe's best good, I trust you with my life. Now, that's answer one. Answer two, if you have pneumonia, bilateral pneumonia, you've got fevers, cough, uh, 105-degree fevers and so forth, if you do nothing, are you not on the path that leads to death? Yes. If you go to the doctor and you start your antibiotics, you trust him, you believe in him, and you take your first dose of antibiotics, are you now on the path that leads to life? Yes. Are you well that day? No. No. But that path, if you stay on that path, you're already in that saving path. And the outcome is guaranteed, but you're always free, anytime you want, to leave the path and go back over here. Now, when you start your antibiotics, the fevers and cough haven't stopped, have they? And in fact, once the antibiotics start, don't they start breaking loose the infection and you start actually coughing up more ugly crud than you did before? Well, that's what happens in our walk with Christ. Once we actually let him in, the Holy Spirit begins resensitizing the conscience. The mind becomes more clear. We're able to see with greater discernment. And suddenly we become aware of all these ugly, gross defects and problems in our life that we didn't even know were there before. It was always there. We just didn't see it because we were blind. And we think, oh, I'm getting so much worse. i got so many more problems since I came to Christ. No, you don't. They're just being coughed up, brought up where you can see them. It's a process of clearing the character of the crud that's in there. And the devil's on the scene, though, and says, look, since you started those antibiotics, you're coughing three times as much. Those things aren't doing you any good. You need to quit those things. Okay? And that's what happens. A lot of Christians, they come to Christ, things, they have all these problems start coming up. They're always there. They just never saw them. And they think, oh, things are getting so much worse. And they walk away and stop coming. It's a trick. It's a lie. We need to remember that as we walk with the Holy Spirit, we will often go through heartache and pains as we cough up crud out of our characters. But then there's a healing peace that comes as we continue to walk with Him. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have not left us dead in trespass and sin, left us writhing down here in fear and insecurity, grappling to protect self at every turn, that you have come, taken upon ourselves this horrible condition, and cured it. You've revealed the truth of what a loving God you are, that we can trust you, and we ask now that you will pour out the, the, the victory that you've won into our hearts, that our minds we brought into harmony with your minds, our thoughts into harmony with your thoughts, our desires in harmony with your desires, so that we will live your life of love, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.